Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Bigfoot is a large and mysterious humanoid creature purported to inhabit the wild and forested areas of Oregon and the west coast of North America. Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, an anglicization of the name Sasquets, from the language spoken by First Nations peoples in southwestern British Columbia. Please excuse my pronunciation. Most people who believe in Bigfoot's existence, or claim to have seen one, assert that they are hair-covered bipeds with ape-like features up to 8 feet tall that leave correspondingly large footprints. They are generally characterized as non-aggressive animals whose shyness and human-like intelligence make them elusive and thus rarely seen. Though some wilderness travelers claim to have smelled their stench or heard their screams and whistles. Over time, stories about Bigfoot have entered into oral tradition and become part of regional folklore. The historical record of Bigfoot in the Oregon country begins in 1904 with sightings of a hairy, wild man by settlers in the Sixes River area in the Coast Range. Similar accounts by miners and hunters followed in later decades. In 1924, miners on Mount St. Helens claimed to have been attacked by giant apes, an incident widely reported in the Oregon press. After 1958, Woods workers east and west of the Cascade Mountains began to report seeing creatures and discovering their immense tracks along logging roads, enhancing public recognition of the Bigfoot name. Witnesses observed these so-called humanoids crossing roads at night, striding furtively through forest and mountain terrain, or digging for and eating ground squirrels in rock piles. Bigfoot quickly entered into the occupational culture of loggers, 
manifested as serious stories, jokes, chainsaw sculptures, and fabricated prints as playful pranks. By the 1970s, former Yeti hunter Peter Byrne had established the Bigfoot Information Center at the Dales, gaining national media attention for his documentation of eyewitness testimony and footprints adduced as evidence for a new species of primate. Footprints in dirt or snow continue to be found and reported to various organized groups who have followed Burns' efforts. Native Americans in Oregon have increasingly situated Bigfoot within traditional belief systems as being with deeply rooted cultural significance. Tribes in coastal Oregon related Bigfoot to ancient tales of wild men who lurked near villages and left immense tracks. Members of plateau tribes, such as those at Warm Springs Reservation, identified Bigfoot as a stick Indian a diverse category of potentially hostile beings who stole salmon and confused people by whistling, causing them to become lost. Sightings and stories continue on reservations today, representing a spiritual connection to the pre-contact past and the resilience of indigenous cultural heritage. More recently, Bigfoot and pop culture has devolved into a series of sports mascots, children's entertainments, and cryptozoological reality shows. It has also been playfully promoted in state legislation and celebrations. Politicians in both Oregon and Washington have proposed bills to protect the creatures from hunters, and hairy humanoids have served as official state mascots, first as Harrison Bigfoot for Washington's Centennial in 1989, and then Sesky the Sasquatch for Oregon's Sesquicentennial in 2009. The legends of Bigfoot go back beyond recorded history and cover the world. In North America, and particularly in the Northwest, you can hear tales of the seven-foot hairy man stalking the woods, occasionally scaring campers, lumberjacks, hikers, and the like. Bigfoot is known by many titles, with many different cultures, although the name Bigfoot is generally attributed to the mountainous western region of North America. The common name Sasquatch comes from the Salish Sasquits, while the Algonquin of the north-central region of the continent refer to a Witiko, or Wendigo. Other nations tell of a large creature much like a man, but imbued with special powers and characteristics. The Ojibwe of the Northern Plains believe that Ragaru appeared in times of danger, and other nations agree that the hairy apparition was a messenger of warning, telling man to change his ways. North American settlers started reporting sightings during the late 1800s and into the 1900s, with the occasional finding of footprints, sporadic encounters, and even a few grainy photos and videos adding to the mystery. Those who claim to have seen Bigfoot have described everything from a large, upright ape to an actual hairy man, sometimes standing over eight feet tall and described as powerfully built. The debate and research continue. Entire organizations exist to study and document Bigfoot and prove its existence, and groups regularly search the Northwest woods, looking for that ultimate proof. In one very real sense, however, Bigfoot does exist. The Western Air Defense Sector... Washington's Air National Guard adopted the mascot of Bigfoot and operates 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, monitoring the skies of nearly 73% of the United States and Canada. Just like the Bigfoot of legend, the sector is rarely seen and rarely heard. But rest assured, it continues to observe and, if necessary, serve as a messenger of warning. Now this may sound cheesy, but my absolute favorite Bigfoot story comes from the movie Harry and the Hendersons. For those of you unfamiliar, Harry and the Hendersons is a 1987 American fantasy comedy film directed and produced by William Deere and starring John Lithgow and Don Amici. Steven Spielberg served as its uncredited executive producer, while the absolute genius Rick Baker provided the makeup 
and the creature design for the titular Bigfoot, Harry. He even won an Oscar for Best Makeup for it at the 60th Academy Awards. Following a camping trip to the nearby Cascade Mountains, George Henderson drives home to his suburban Seattle with his family when he hits a Bigfoot with his station wagon. Believing it to be dead and the key to fame and fortune, the family straps the creature to the roof of their car. A lone hunter tracking the creature discovers the Henderson's damaged license plate. That night, George, played brilliantly by John Lithgow, goes to the garage to examine the Bigfoot and discovers it was alive and has escaped. He finds the creature in the kitchen, having knocked over the refrigerator while looking for food. The family soon realize that the creature is intelligent and friendly. The family bonds with the creature, and George decides to return him to the wilderness, naming the Bigfoot Harry. George tries to lure him to the station wagon with food, but Harry becomes upset and runs off. Saddened, the family attempt to resume their normal lives, but sightings of Harry become more frequent as media fervor heightens. George tries to find Harry and visits the North American Museum of Anthropology to speak with Dr. Wallace Wrightwood, a supposed expert on Bigfoot, played by the amazing Donna Michi. Eventually, George finds Harry, and along with his family, they go on a hilarious journey with their very own Bigfoot, trying to navigate life and keeping Harry a secret from friends, neighbors, and the pesky Bigfoot hunter. This is a movie that I have watched dozens of times when I was a kid. Hell, even as an adult. And you know what? It holds up. It takes the Bigfoot legend and turns it on its head. It's full of laughs and genuine heartfelt moments that, I'm not ashamed to admit, can still choke me up. When George tells Harry to take care of himself, I can't help but shed a tear. An excellent way to spend an eye on the couch. Check it out if you haven't. I want to take a minute before I start the story to talk about what's coming this season on the show. Firstly, that it's going to be a season. That's new. Previously, I would release episodes whenever I had an idea in my head for a story. I'm going to take a more formatted approach this year. The season is going to run up until Halloween, before I go on a break and begin again at the beginning of March, giving me enough time to gather stories and improve on the production of the show. Maybe even learn how to do sound mixing, which has been a plight to my existence ever since I started this, and I thank you all for sticking around during it. I'm going to try my absolute best to release episodes on the first and third Mondays of the month. I know I've already broken that schedule, but starting in April, that's the release schedule I am going to try my best to stick to. The third Monday is going to be the same format, your normal episode of Haunted American History, folklore, and an original story that that folklore has inspired. The first Monday, however, is going to be reserved for the telling of a long-formatted season-long tale, pure fiction. And I'm excited to announce that season one will be the continuation of the Zachary Bain story that I started all the way back in episode six. I'm going to cut that episode up and post a recap before the story continues to save you all from going back and listening to the Halloween origin folklore again. I'm also excited to announce the start of a new podcast. Hey, 90s kids. Remember Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, me too. The show that terrified me as a kid to watch at night. Well, I'm going to watch it again as an adult. And go over it, episode by episode, with friends, comedians, and some film industry pals. Haunted American History presents, submitted for your approval. Coming soon, so be on the lookout. Now, back to the story. The world went silent. Everyone forgot about their wars, their political stances, their outfits of the day. They forgot, and they shared. The video quickly spread like wildfire. Every news feed, broadcast, and trend were all accompanied by one hashtag. Bigfoot is real. 
jaws dropped when it first sprung up. First thoughts were it had to be fake. Had to be CGI or some amazing movie quality animatronic. This was no grainy obstructed view. No walking behind the trees or crouching behind bushes. This was up close and personal. The footage was taken from a high definition trail camera that a man named Roland Proctor captured and his son released behind his father's back. Roland never wanted this released as he didn't want the attention on his land, a place his family has been hunting on for generations. He refused to talk to all press once the video went viral and people figured out where his property was located. He also threatened to bring legal action against anyone who trespassed on his land, a whopping six square miles of dense forest in northern Oregon. The video, which held up against even the most skeptical of viewers, played out like this. The camera blinks to life when the motion of a buck walking past it activates the motion sensor. The deer stands off to the right of the camera and walks out of frame for a second before coming back and centering himself in front of the camera before it begins grazing. In a flash, a giant gorilla-like creature covered in filthy coarse brown hair explodes onto the animal with such speed and ferocity, it's almost as if he was fired out of a cannon at the surprised creature. While the video contains no sound, experts claim that the creature must have moved in absolute silence as the deer, a naturally skittish animal, makes no inkling that it heard the attack coming. The gruesome spectacle that unfolds over the next minute and a half is not for the weak stomached. The creature almost instantly beheads the deer and crunches its skull between its teeth like it was taking a bite out of an apple, chewing on antlers and all. The deer's legs still kicking while its body is then consumed while it's held in its enormous arms. When done with its feast, the creature, the Bigfoot, leaves nothing more than a bloody pulp behind when it's finished staring into the camera for a second before it walks away into the distance and the camera cuts off. Needless to say, nobody could believe their eyes. This had to be fake. Top people in the fields of video editing and computer effects combed over the video from front to back for countless hours, and the conclusion was, if it was a fake, it was the best damn fake they've ever seen. And the technology used to create it doesn't exist. And odds are good, this unassuming 60-something-year-old farmer didn't come up with it. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise.
by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Enter Michael Hatch, only son of billionaire diamond mogul Clifford Hatch. Michael was no stranger to the public eye, for good or bad. Mostly bad. It seemed that a week would seldom go by that his name wasn't in the news. Most famously, he was involved in a DUI where a death occurred. He was cleared of all charges. All the money in the world unfortunately couldn't buy him class, or a conscience for that matter. It did buy him a taste for the exotic. The rarer the better. His love of guns and collecting brought him to the logical next step. Big game hunting. Countless photos are floating around the internet of him posing heroically over the corpse of a lion or elephant. It's the photos that you don't see which would cause the major outrage. With the lion would be all of its cubs. What about endangered animals, you ask? Well, the more endangered, the better, if you ask Michael. He has a locked-off room in his palatial estate full of stuffed-mounted giant pandas, snow leopards, and Asian elephants. The man also has a taste for the paranormal and the unexplained. He once paid the mortgage of the house in Amityville for a year and sent the owners on a two-week all-expenses-paid vacation so he could attempt to lure out and catch the entity that presided there. He had a team of psychics and ghost hunters with them. They had no luck. He was currently in Scotland on the trail of the Loch Ness Monster when the video appeared online. He was on his way to his private jet before the video finished playing. It didn't take long for him to find Roland's information, and less time for him to get Roland to agree. Turns out being able to offer someone just about any amount of money is a good enough tactic to get what you want. After a short conversation and an undisclosed price, Roland gave Michael his address and had a meeting there the following Tuesday. Roland told the man that the trip to find the missing link wasn't for the faint of heart. It was a two-day trek through dense forest. The first half was done on four-wheelers, but the second half would have to be on foot. Roland also had him to agree that this was purely a research expedition, but as far as Michael was concerned, he wasn't coming home without the creature's body. Money is the great equalizer, and if they couldn't agree on the price, well, he would just leave rolling where he stood. If this forest was good enough to keep Bigfoot hidden for all these years, he was sure no one would find Roland. And if they did, so what? That's what lawyers are for. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. In the meantime, Michael had some work to do. He had to put a team together. A small team. He already had his bodyguard. Retired Israeli special forces named Omir. An imposing man who seldom spoke. And brothers Mark and Dan. Forty-something outdoorsmen who will literally do anything if the price is right. These were Michael's guys when he went on his hunting trips. These three paid for themselves tenfold when he got himself in a pretty sticky situation he found himself while hunting rhinos in Africa. Michael and his men met Roland at his home, just like they agreed. Michael had a hard time believing that this frail-looking man was going to be able to even get on his four-wheeler, never mind lead them on a trek through some of the most dense forests in the Pacific Northwest. He was a pale, skinny man, with short hair and long fingernails. 
He wore torn blue jeans that looked three sizes too big and a red flannel jacket. He carried a small pack with him that he secured to his quad, commenting on all the gear that Michael and his men were bringing. They would be following the old man in two side-by-sides, both equipped with pickup beds that were stuffed to the gills with supplies. Tents, sleeping bags, MREs, lures, and hidden under all of that? Guns. Also shovels and some lye, in case things took a bad turn. That turn being Roland arguing with them about their intent. But that was putting the cart before the horse. As far as Michael could see, Roland was an agreeable old-timer. The first leg of their journey was a long one. The men slowly made their way through the forest with Roland at the front. Early on in the trip, the brothers let their pride get in the way of their experience, and they decided they weren't moving fast enough, and they decided to go around Roland. Well, they got stuck within minutes, and it took the men almost an hour to get them out of the bog they drove in. Roland reminded the men that they don't know these woods like him, and just follow him to prevent further setbacks. And the men reluctantly did just that. Just before sundown, Roland had a spot picked out. An area in the forest that looked like it has been camped in for years. Roland told them that this was the halfway point. This is where they would set up base camp, and in the morning they would go out on foot. Michael and his men set up their tents, and Roland just pulled out a bedroll. They started a fire and started heating up food, just sitting around getting to know each other before settling in. So Roland, tell us a little about yourself. How long have you lived up here? Michael asked with a smirk. Well, Mike, I've lived up... Michael, please, I hate Mike, Michael interrupted. Mike is something you sing into. Apologies, Michael, I, I didn't mean to insult you. To answer your question, I've lived up here all my life. This land has been in my family for generations. My grandfather and his father taught me how to hunt here, and we've had many palavers right here on this spot, sitting around the fire like this. How about you, Michael? Roland asked, pointing a stick in his direction. Where did you get your love for the outdoors? Where'd that come from? Michael laughed. Love of outdoors. That's good. I hate the outdoors, as a matter of fact. But I love what lives out here. Especially the things that are getting harder and harder to come by. Collecting is something that has interested my family forever. In fact, that's how we've made our money. By collecting diamond mines and controlling the market, we decide the worth. Holding back diamonds creates artificial demand. People will pay anything for things they think are limited. That explains the price you paid me, Roland said with a mocking laugh. Nah, you got me there, old-timer, Michael said, smiling. Looks like we're all getting something out of this. Have you ever seen anything like this out here before? Mark chimed in, after cracking open his third beer. May want to slow down on those, Roland said, removing his stick from the fire and pointing the glowing red end toward the beer. Need your wits about you out here. Easy to get turned around. Get lost. I'll be fine, Mark said before tipping the can back and taking a big swallow. But, to answer your question, there has always been strange things that went on out here. There's an air about these woods that always gave me the heebie-jeebies as a boy. It's something you get used to, I guess. My dad used to tell us a story about the laughing kids in the woods. The men let out a chuckle with an accompanying eye roll from Michael. I had the same reaction, Roland continued, until I heard them myself. Just then, it seemed as though the woods got silent. All the noise of the bustling critters, the chirps of the birds, the croaks of the frogs, all seemed to silence all at once. The shadows thrown by the flames of the campfire gave the trees a gnarled, foreboding look. This the men all seemed to notice as well, as Roland continued talking. 
The Native Americans up in these parts used to tell stories of the Wendigo. Their version of the Bigfoot, you see. And how their children would leave out trinkets for them. Almost how kids leave out cookies for Santa Claus. But the trinkets weren't a thank you for the presents, but a gift for him. A gift to keep him moving. To spare their tribe. Sometimes the gifts work. And sometimes they didn't. They would wake up in the morning and people would be missing. Kids, adults, it didn't matter. They said that the Windigo was collecting himself. Collecting company. People to travel the forest with him so he wouldn't be so lonely. That's the laughter you hear. The voices from all the lost people who are playing in the forest in the company of the Windigo. Protecting this land. Ever since I can remember, I'd leave something outside my tent or sleeping bag. Something for them to take instead of me. Superstition, most likely, but I still play along. Too easy to do, and not something I want to find out isn't just a story, if you understand. I suggest you all do the same. A howl of a wolf broke the tension and caused a nervous laugh to break out among the men. And with that, I gotta take a piss, Mark said as he threw his empty Budweiser next to his tent. That's a good enough a gift, <laughs> Dan said laughing as he threw his own can next to it. He won't like that, Roland said with a worried tone. Another thing, once this fire is out, and if you should need to get up and pass water, and with how much you're drinking it looks like you boys will have to, you should tie off a string to your tent and not wander too far off. People tend to get turned around out here. Yeah, I think I'll manage, Mark said before stepping behind a tree. Well, on that note, I'm going to get some sleep. Good night, gentlemen, Michael said as he stood up and headed for his tent. Omir stood up as well, silent as the grave, and followed, stepping into a tent set up next to Michael's after he was already inside his. Once the rest of the men said their goodnights and got ready for sleep, the forest seemed to come back to life and filled with noise of busy nocturnal creatures. The fire continued to burn, but with no one awake to feed it, it shortly reduced down to glowing embers and then eventually, ash. The campground was enveloped into darkness. The canopy of trees overhead didn't even let the faintest glow of moonlight through. You couldn't see an inch in front of your face out there once the fire was out. Michael woke up in the middle of the night, and when he checked his phone, which oddly enough had no service out here, he saw that it was only a quarter past three. It was the unzipping of a tent nearby that woke him up. One of the brothers getting up to pee, no doubt. He was only awake long enough to have that thought, and then sleep took him again. Morning came the way morning does but that made little difference in the forest. The trees overhead blotted out the sky, leaving little room for daylight. Instead, the woods just had a gray tint to it now, with random beams of brilliant ember peeking in here and there. When the men emerged from their tents, Roland was still fast asleep in his bedroll. Michael and Omir stepped out of their respective tents almost at the exact same time. Mark and Dan, on the other hand, their tent was empty. The flap that made the door, unzipped and hanging open, flapping slightly in the morning breeze. Michael, figuring they went to go handle business, went about breaking down his setup as Omer did the same. During the commotion, Roland woke up. Michael looked down at the old man who was struggling to his feet and pitied him. He stretched out his old bones and his body creaked and snapped like worn floorboards. Michael wished him a good morning, and Roland looked at him confused. Huh? Roland said before remembering to remove his earplugs. What's that? Good morning, Michael repeated. Oh, you as well, Michael. How'd you sleep? I put these things in to drown out those wretched frogs. Like nails on a chalkboard to me, they are. I slept well, Michael answered. You didn't happen to see which way Mark and Dan went, did you? 
No, no, I haven't. I'll tell you, with these things in, I may as well be a corpse. Danny Kay could tap that next to me, and I doubt I'd hear it, Roland said with a laugh. I'm sure they went off the toilet. About twenty minutes, and no sign of the men returning, Roland's nonchalant attitude turned to that of worry. I told them to tie a string off. I told them. You all heard me. You get turned around out here. Michael seemed more aggravated than worried that his companions were missing, and when Roland suggested that they spread out to look for the men, Michael shouted at him, I've wasted enough time on this trek. I will not waste another day. We move on. But your friends, Roland said. We move on. What's so hard to understand? Roland just nodded. The men loaded up their gear and silently started their hike. They got to a clearing not far from the campground where Omer stopped and adjusted his pack and redistributed the weight a little bit. Roland walked on ahead a few paces, and Michael stopped with Omir, and that's when they heard the drops. The sound of rain blotting down onto the soft ground, falling into puddles with fat plops. Great, Michael said, getting Roland's attention, stopping him and turning to face Michael. This is all we need. Omer, grab my rain gear out of your pack. Roland looked up through the clearing in the trees, and he saw the sky was blue. He saw sunbeams peeking through the trees. I don't think that's rain, Roland said, looking above Omer and Michael. That's when he spotted the bodies. Mark and Dan. Hung by their feet from the trees above. Their eyes dug out, and their hands. Their hands looked like they were bit off. Roland let out a gasp and clutched his hand to his mouth to silence the scream that wanted to come out. Omer laid his pack out and pulled out a semi-automatic rifle with a collapsed barrel and shouldered the weapon, just as Michael did the same. Only Roland seemed to react. Michael only said, We're close, with a grin that you couldn't slap off. Roland, now looking between the weapons and the bodies with an uneasy panic on his face. Oh, curse this. Curse this deal. When did I get myself into this? I can't be here. I can't. I gotta go. I can't. Omer walked up to Roland and slapped the old man hard, bloodying his mouth. The shock of the slap quieted Roland. Now, Roland, you're just going to calm right down and take us to where the beast was spotted. I'd leave you dead in a heap right here, but we need you to get out of here. So you're going to calm down, lead the way, and leave here a very rich man. A breeze then crept through the trees, and laughter floated on top of it. Child's laughter. Michael? Roland said nervously. I don't think any of us are leaving here. Scurrying behind them around the trees, heavy footsteps circling the men. Roland backing up, tripped on a root and fell hard on his tailbone in front of an overgrown bush of vines. As the man braced himself to get up, something grabbed him and pulled him into the mess, leaving behind one of the man's boots. Omer pushed Michael behind him, dropping to one knee and shouldering the rifle. Peering through the scope in the direction Roland disappeared. A noise from behind the men caused Michael to turn awkwardly and stumble, firing his rifle into the dirt. The stumble caused him to be out of the way when a giant rock was hurled their way, striking Omer in the ear and knocking the man to the ground. That's when Michael's flight instinct kicked in. Most would call it cowardice. He ran in the direction he believed they made camp the night before, where the four-wheelers were, and the rest of their supplies, where his satellite phone would be, the things he packed in case of emergency. Running through the forest at a frantic pace, it sounded like something or someone was keeping stride with him. Running through the trees with his rifle slung over his shoulder, he just had to get away. He didn't know at this point if he was even going in the right direction. The sounds in the brush getting closer now. 
but it sounds like it's in front of him. Before it could register that it was in front of him, he ran directly into what was making the noise. It was Roland. The old man popped out from behind a tree and right into Michael. Roland, Michael shouted. What happened? Where did you go? Did you see it? I don't know. I was getting up and then I was pulled into the brush. I scrambled and and, and I just ran. I think I saw the four wheels right through here, but I heard something in the trees, so I doubled back and I ran into you. Well, then that's the way we need to go, Michael said as he unslung the gun from his shoulder and into his hands. Are you a good shot with that, Michael? Michael just nodded and pointed the barrel at Roland and gestured him to go on in front of him. Making their way through the thick growth, Roland stopped short about a dozen or so yards from where they ran into each other, Michael walking into the old man's back with the barrel of the rifle. If his finger was on the trigger, he would have shot a hole right through the old man. What's up, old man? Why'd you stop? Roland just pointed. In the distance, he could see the tire and front end of Roland's quad. But in between them and the campsite was a creature. Not the hulking ape like Michael had seen in the video. Not the Bigfoot that Michael had come here for. A much smaller version. It looked like a child, but it was covered in patches of matted hair. It turned in their direction, and you could see its misaligned jaw protruding out to the side with sharp-looking teeth jetting out and digging into its cheek. Its long, thin arms corded with muscle and ending with razor-sharp claws. Michael gasped at first, but then he smirked. Looks like I'm going home with a trophy after all, he thought. He lost his trusted bodyguard on this trip, and that kind of sucked, but he can always get another. No great loss. He nudged Roland to the side with his rifle as he brought it to his shoulder. He lined up the shot. It was only about eight yards from him, an easy kill. He brought his finger up to the trigger as the small creature looked at him with what looked like a crooked smile on its face, its black eyes staring back at him. He took in a deep breath and held it. The pain he felt in his body as his shoulder and collarbone snapped under the force of the Sasquatch's blow was blinding. He didn't see the enormous monster walking up on the side of him. His rifle went spinning out of his arms as his right arm dangled at his hip, held on by just skin. The creature pushed him to the ground and he landed at Roland's feet. The forest then filled with children laughing. Slowly, seemingly from everywhere, these little creatures started emerging from behind the trees and out of bushes, all grinning and laughing. Some of them hunched over with mangled posture, walking toward the men. Michael propped himself up on his knees with his left arm as his right arm lay limp. Roland stepped around Michael and placed himself in front of the man, Michael on his knees pleading with these monsters, please. Roland walked towards the children, and when he reached them, they stopped moving forward. He reached out and touched one of them, gently caressing its cheek. It's people like you that make me hate this world. What? Michael said, confused. It's your type that forced us back into hiding. You were close, Michael. You don't know how close you were to finding old Nessie. If I didn't lure you out here with that video, you would have gotten to her. And what would you have done? Killed her? Stuffed her and put her on display? For what? She never did anything to anyone. Oh, Omer, Michael said behind a tearful choke. The special forces boy, please. I was trained at house to kill hell beasts. Even at my age, I was able to dispatch him with ease. 
I heard him talk finally. He made me so uneasy on this trip being so quiet. He wasn't quiet while I worked on him, I'll tell you that much. Michael tried to get to his feet to make one last-ditch effort to run, but he stumbled and fell on his hanging arm. Oh, look at you. You know it's bittersweet. I made a nice life in this world, but I guess it's time to return home. There's a buzz of something big on the horizon, and I gotta position myself on the right side. This Taz Guardian must abandon his post. I'm sure your people will track you to me, but I'll be long gone by then. And I'll probably get chewed out for this when I get back, but it's okay. I've been chewed out before. Well, Mike, I'd be lying if I said it's been a pleasure. But I must be going now. I believe my friends here will enjoy their time with you a little bit longer before they join me. Make it quick, fellas. I can only hold the veil open for so long. Ta-ta, Mike. Come, little ones. Back home we go. Roland proceeded to remove a small relic from his pocket that Michael couldn't make out. He made a grand swinging gesture with his right arm with the relic in his hand and sliced at it with the air. The air in front of him seemed like it was left rippling like blacktop on a hot summer afternoon. He stepped halfway in and his body disappeared. He turned himself and guided the children into this ripple as they began to disappear one by one. The next thing Michael saw was the teeth of the giant creature as it secured its lower jaw to the back of Michael's head and bit the top of his head off from the nose up. From the pages of the Washington Press, October 24th, 2021. Page 1. Billionaire still missing. Whereabouts unknown. Michael Hatch has been missing for six days after landing his private jet in a private airfield outside of Trout Lake. People close to the man saying he was visiting a Mr. Roland Proctor, the owner of the recent Bigfoot video that has gone viral. Mr. Proctor is also missing. Mr. Hatch's satellite phone was last pinged somewhere inside of Gifford Pinnock National Park. Anyone with any information, please contact the FBI's Bureau of Missing Persons. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.